Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. When accidents, injuries, or emergencies happen, American Medical Response is there. As part of the Global Medical Response family of companies, AMR is committed to its mission of providing care to the world at a moment's notice. As a leading 911 emergency medical response provider within the community, AMR wants to remind you to stay safe, San Diego. To learn more about AMR, visit amr.net. Can, can my, I'm sorry to interrupt. My wife loves your show. She listens to you all, all the time. And so she just wanted to show her. <laughs> I was going to but I decided. Hey, thank you. Chris, Kristen, that is an awesome t-shirt. Thank you. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. My name is Scott Lewis. I'm the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined as always by assistant editor Andrew Keats. Hello, Andy. What's up, buddy? Managing editor Sarah Libby. Hello. Hello. All right, coming up on the show today crisis or no crisis, San Diego would not be San Diego if we weren't coming up with some ballot measures to stuff the November ballot with. It is starting to shape up with some historic decisions for voters to make. We're going to go through a couple of those. And I'm not one to criticize anyone's stretched metaphors. <laughs> I've stretched plenty in my day. But Barbara Bree called SDSU's project to redevelop Mission Valley Stadium land, quote, stillborn because of insider shenanigans. What is going on with that drama? We'll break down a little bit of that in the latest. And in the second half of the show, we're going to hear from urban designer Howard Blackson, on his idea about how restaurants could reopen and survive this time of social distancing, maybe outside. But first, the reopening. A lot of people are talking, and the county public health officer was asked to respond to county supervisor Jim Desmond, one of the five county supervisors, overseas county staff. He said this the other day on a podcast. And we have... We've had 175 COVID-related deaths in Sioux County. Six of those were purely COVID deaths. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong. San Diego County that was on the Armstrong and Getty Extra Large Interviews podcast. Armstrong and Getty Extra Large Interviews podcast. And he says six deaths were purely COVID-related, like the pure stuff, like the... No, not the... Don't stretch a metaphor the other just type of COVID. Go with it. Yeah. <laughs> just a pure, pure can I, COVID. Can I humble brag for a second? Sure. Was it that you were on Armstrong and Getty's extra large interviews before? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Never heard of that in my life. Uh, probably not the target audience. Um, so I guess it's been about eight years now since I was working in DC covering, uh, the 2012 presidential campaign. And at the time, probably the biggest story of my career was the, uh, legitimate rape story, which I edited and published and caused quite a stir. And -hmm. this really took me back to that sort of the suggestion that maybe these aren't legitimate COVID deaths because they were actually caused by an underlying condition. It seems like there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah. I mean, this is, if if you've had the unfortunate uh, circumstance of walking into any part of the conspiracy theory uh, pandemic web, you have been faced with people who are finding ways to undermine death counts and to say these deaths aren't really COVID related or uh, the only people who are dying uh, are fit into these categories. And so to create this like this subcategory that is pure deaths, as in like these are the deaths we can we can really trust as as being you know derived from COVID-19. Uh, 
I, I'm looking for a more charitable interpretation of it, but I, I, I don't really see one other than right. uh, indulging this conspiracy theory about what we see every day about the death counts. Yeah, it does seem like Desmond is is switching over to that full blown like this is this is over. This was overrated. Over we overreacted. We need to full on reopen. But that brings up the question of like what exactly is reopening? You know, the, the L.A. public health officer caused this nationwide storm when she said offhand that the L.A. wouldn't reopen or would stay would have a stay at home order for three more months. Uh, it, and that got just that just got a ton of attention because I think it was more news about nobody even knows what stay at home is anymore. We have this situation where there's the uh, blue states that are closed supposedly with a bunch of exemptions and openings. You can go to the beach, you can go to the, all these places, you can do all these things, dog groomers, all these things. So it's closed with a bunch of open things, and then you have uh, these red states that are open with a bunch of restrictions. And they're not that far apart. I mean, there's a few places that have started to allow bars and cafes to open. Wisconsin had bars are open, but that's it. There's nothing, There's the this difference is more of this like take. Are you open or are you closed literally in the way you say what you are? And people are going nuts about that take as opposed to these like specific restrictions that, Often when you press them, I'm not sure what Desmond would actually say needs to happen now, except, I guess, restaurants and bars? Yeah, churches maybe. Um, Parking lots, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a real inability, it seems, to express any sort of uh, sentiment in between these two open-close situations, when the reality is, like, everyone... Every state, every locality exists somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Uh, and, and as you say, Scott, like the, the differences are actually not that large right now. So we're coming to this place where it's basically not allowed to be inside with a bunch of other people in the same indoor environment. Now, unfortunately, that's what school is. <laughs> so that's still a big part. And there's no other state in this country. There's nobody here who's figured out what we're going to do about opening schools, which of course gives me tremendous anxiety as I've been talking about a lot. I I had this exchange with Laura Cohn, who's at the Workforce Partnership, uh, oversees their efforts with early workforce development and, and, and education and stuff, and had this just awful exchange where she basically you know, outlined a, a way that schools might work, uh, some way that they might come together, which was really hard on me to picture. And then when we talked it seemed like she indicated that the consensus view of school leaders right now was that that's going to be the way it is, some sort of really weird social distancing or distance learning until there's an actual vaccine. And that was like a gut punch to hear. Also, what if there isn't a vaccine? <laughs> like, are, right. are we not like, are we just going to remake the same mistake again where we don't price in any tail risk about the the like, what seems like a low likelihood event, but we just round it down to a zero percent likelihood event. What it, like there is it is yeah, not a guarantee also, that we get a vaccine. And it's also, I mean, I don't know how these things tend to work, but do you just go from zero to widely available vaccine that is right. easy to get and available for everyone? It seems like there are going to be phases there as far as availability. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think the fastest they've ever developed a vaccine is four years, and that was like sixty years ago. I mean, I don't. I I think this is part of the 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 anxiety this is driving is like if we don't have a place for kids to go uh, over this period to to be educated. So there's the educational problem itself of them losing uh, whatever momentum they have and then struggling. But then there's also, you know, the work that's like saying, go to work, open the economy without roads. Like you just need, you need roads, (laughs) you need schools to function. And then, um, are we saying that it can't go back until then? I, that's just a, it's just, it's just, it's just shocking. And then if you add to that, like if you get to the point where they do say you have to do social distancing this fall, like SDSU said, we're not going to do, um, any on-campus activities, any on-campus classes, unless it's like 
super indispensable that they be together, then um, you're going to have a lot of parents who turn to online charters or turn to online uh, homeschool platforms, charter schools that serve them. And and you might see 10, 20, 30% of, of students coming out of the district. So you have these districts talking about these massive financial problems that they're facing. We'll add to it that, you know, a significant portion of kids might take their money their, their, that follows the kids to uh, some other uh, option. And you have a historic dissolution of schools on the horizon. Well, so you need to walk through why would parents choose to go to these other school options um, if it's going to be online anyway? If, if everyone's going to transition to some sort of distance learning scenario, um, why would teachers choose or why would parents choose one set of schools uh, to do that instead of another? It's been rough, man. <laughs> it's been really there are a lot of teachers who uh, have never had any experience with some of these platforms and, um, you know, aren't it's it's there's like eight different software platforms they're working on. There's no uniform uh, issue. There's no sort of clear plan. There's every teacher's kind of just been handed like this, a bunch of links and, and a few sets of guidances. And it's just kind of a free for all. So each class is just all over the place. Uh, I think that some of these other places that have been doing online distance learning for some time might be able to make the case to a bunch of them, especially the homeschool ones uh, that are like designed to assist parents with that process are, are going to be able to make a case. And a lot of them are already talking about forming these little study groups and stuff that, uh, you know, I, I hear about and and just see nightmares. It seems ironic to have watched this play out over the last few years of traditional schools kind of deriding these online charter school options. And that's not to say that, you know, they might not have legitimate points about what kind of learning those offer. But as far as like sheer technological prowess, there's probably no question that a lot of these systems that have been doing online learning for so long are, are really far advanced as, as far as like delivering that to students. Yeah, I just, uh, it, it's going to be, it has to be the highest priority, I think, for people to deal with as far as like, or one of them, if we're talking about reopening and we're only boiled down to now like restaurants and get your burger somewhere and get a beer somewhere with other people, like, you know, really at the heart of all this is can people gather inside in any form? And if not, what in the world are schools going to look like? We were talking with Laura Cohn and the Voice of San Diego at home show. And she said, you know, um, I, I can't, I, they're going to have to lower class sizes by a ton. And it's like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, like we're, you know, we already, with we like already a, wanted to limit class sizes. There are, there are, there are hurdles that we've run into. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it can happen if you cut the educational year in half. If you say basically everything's a half day mm -hmm. and and some kids go in the morning, some kids go at night, but that means you're literally offering half the service at that point and then they got to make it up with childcare on the other side. And so is the why really going to be able to scale up that much in an affordable way? There's going to be just so many giant questions here and it seems much bigger than can I go get a burger somewhere? Well, the, the question that I will be watching and I don't know the answer to this, which is why it bears watching, but... It, what's scary is the possibility that it isn't a matter of priorities. You know, you said this has to be the top priority. What if it's the case that it is the top priority, but there just is no good answer? There's no, um, there, there's no solution. It's not a matter of getting more smart people into a room to figure it out. If there's, if there's just no way to do it safely, then what? Well, there's going to be a lot of um, decisions that have to be made, and I hope they make them quick about. Um, when that can open and, and in what form so people can make some plans. Another thing they're planning for, of course, is the November ballot. San Diego City Council this week discussed several ballot measures that they want to put on. There's going to be state measures. There's going to be uh, some local ones. And the local ones look to be pretty spicy. Uh, the biggest one yesterday that was pushed forward by the City Council Rules Committee was this plan to uh, ask voters if they can loosen the height limit 
for building on the coast of San Diego for the Midway area where the sports arena is. So right now, you are not allowed to build over 30 feet west of the five in the city of San Diego. It's been a 40-year law. You have to get a vote of the people in order to get something like that done. The, the SeaWorld, for example, got a vote of the people to allow their roller coasters to get built. And so now, Chris Kate, Councilman Chris Kate, along with uh, Councilwoman Jen Campbell, who represents the area, have pushed forward a plan to ask voters on the November ballot to loosen that restriction for all of the Midway area around Sports Arena, and it went forward. Are you surprised it went forward? No, I'm not surprised it went forward. I think um, most signals from City Hall had had been that people were were supportive of this idea. I, I don't think you, look. You've got the council member who represents that area is part is part of pushing it. You've got uh, members of, of both parties involved in pushing it in Chris Kate and Jen Campbell. Uh, the mayor's office has to some degree orchestrated this rollout that is culminated in this measure. Um, if you briefly indulge me, it goes back a few years. They uh, allowed all of the leases in that area that uh, on city owned land in the sports arena to expire around the same time period so that they would have an opportunity to do a, a new things there. They passed a new community plan that increases the uh, allow allowable like housing density to be built there. Uh, and now they put out a request for proposals from developers to rebuild the the sports arena and a bunch of ancillary development around it. And then the last piece is this ballot measure that would potentially raise the height limit and therefore allow you to have more flexibility in what you build in that sports arena area. So given that, you, you've got the council member who represents the area, you've got members from the Democratic and Republican Party, and you've got the mayor's staff kind of ushering this all through. Uh, I think it would have been a surprise if it didn't go forward. Yeah. So, uh, and Campbell, Dr. Jen Campbell, who represents the area, she uh, she's excited about it. She's fired up, so excited. She was caught on a hot mic, uh, the <laughs> classic nightmare some of us have, where she didn't mute her mic when she was having a public meeting and uh, was in city council and... <laughs> <laughs> they they caught some of her conversation about this issue in particular. I had heard it was coming. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Councilmember so Campbell, I think you you need to I'm go on so mute. I'm so happy that all the people, you know, opened their minds okay. and accepted the views. I'm sorry, Councilmember Moreno. So, so I'm such a wonderful thing for the Councilmember Campbell, if you could please mute your phone, we can hear your private conversation. We had over seventy-four billion dollars, billion That's with great. a B, well, I'm not in at all about it. export and, uh, and import. <laughs> what have I got to lose, right? And uh, yeah, and um, Councilmember Campbell, we can hear your conversation. This is um, Barbara Bree, so please mute your phone. <laughs> I, I gotta say, are we, I, I, are I we sure that this? Are we sure that this wasn't like a deeply calculated West? <laughs> West Wing move where <laughs> yeah. like she scripted it out in advance and she's just like being super casual. What do I have to lose? Yeah, she says I'm not chicken. It's awesome. Right. Uh it's it it actually like as far as getting moments getting caught on a hot mic go, uh I I think it's kind of endearing and I think it makes the the political leap for to push for this measure uh seem better it, like you know like I, th I think that the situation comes out a little bit better it's, it's like she acknowledges that it's potentially controversial but she's not worried about it and she's just pushing forward and and so far everybody likes it and and you know <laughs> what is what is she what has she got to lose yeah uh now there, <laughs> there is was also I, I i got so mad when i was trying to figure out what she was saying she's about to say the only people who don't like it are and then uh councilwoman brie who was chairing the meeting goes Council Member Campbell, you, we can hear your conversation. <laughs> and I was like, oh, like if you could have come in to interrupt her just a second later, I really wanted to hear who are the people who don't like it and what were you about to say about them? Well, one of the per people who doesn't like it is Bree herself. She was the only no vote on that committee uh, to move it forward. She's, of course, running for mayor. She didn't say that she was opposed to the concept she basically said it just wasn't the right time. 
Um, I asked uh, our Assemblyman Todd Gloria, who's of course running against her for the mayor's office, and he said he was into it. Uh, he would support the committee's decision and the measure. He says it gives San Diegans the opportunity to consider a new life for the sports arena property. I guess he's not saying he's for the measure there. He's saying he's for them voting, uh, but she was against it. So that's a, an interesting breakdown there. You know, there will be a lot of people in the Point Loma area and others who are uh, opposed to it on principle that the height limit is very important to them. And uh, maybe she's trying to align with them. There was another measure that went forward, at least uh, for consideration to be placed on the ballot. And this is the ranked choice voting system. So uh, this is a little bit different. You might have heard of it in the past. So in this system, voters would, you know, of course, rank choice. They, they, you rate your, your candidates. So you have your first choice, second choice, uh, third and fourth. And then uh, if your first choice doesn't get in, then the, uh, then your second one counts. The, but in this one, the top four candidates in the traditional primary will advance to a general election, which would be settled by ranked choice. This was bizarre to me because um, in, a, in a normal ranked choice thing, you get rid of the primary. That's the whole point. You have 10 people run, and then you rank your first, second, third, and then you don't have to do a primary because it does it in your head, in the head of the, of the, of the big computer that figures it out. Like it figures out what everybody's uh, preference is out of that. And so I don't know why they set it up like that, but um, I guess they, I don't know. Do you have any insight on why well, they did so that? So Councilman Mark Kersey, who was sort of the, the shepherd of this, um, he said that this was basically what they landed on after talking talking to other people and, get, and soliciting feedback. Uh, that people were sort of, well, for one, because the city... Uh, is not the only entity that conducts elections. They were saying, well, we can't get rid of the primary anyway. The, like, it's it's not as though because the state so offices... it's sort of like a compromise for consistency's sake? Yeah, well, sort of, yeah. I mean, the, the, there's still concerns about it, inconsistency, but yeah, it's a compromise. For, it, it, it says the cost savings of not having a primary aren't real anyway because we're still going to have to have a primary yeah. for school districts and for for all these other things. Um, and so, and I guess there was some concern that the, um, that there would be too many people on a ballot and that it would be like that in a primary, if you have 10 or 15 people on the ballot, that that might be hard for voters to, to rank their favorites. So you would whittle it down this way. And then you'd have like four people who would have a real opportunity in the general to make a case with um, attention, but then you would still get the benefit of, um, you know, people not having to worry about, you know, the, the person they really want to vote for, they don't perceive as having a chance to win. So they don't vote for them. And it creates this, uh, situation that snuffs out, um, disparate voices, that sort of thing. So it, it seems like they sort of just tried to split the baby in a, in a, in a number of different yeah, it's ways. Kind of rank choice light. Yeah. Yeah, I think, so if you picture how this works, so say we had ranked choice for the state when they had all the Democratic candidates here, rather than like pick like Biden because you you just want to make sure that he emerges or something, you could pick um, your favorite candidate and put Biden as, as your second choice. And if if other people felt the same as you did, that favorite candidate might have more of a shot than if everybody like boiled down to their, their um, you know, the thing that they just want to make sure happens instead of something potentially, you know, bad in their perspective. And so it, it ostensibly gives third party or, or just less well-funded candidates who might be really compelling a better shot. Yeah. The, one of the other uh, arguments that they mentioned at the committee hearing that I had not heard or thought of before was that this is something of a hedge against the concerns caused by early voting that people mail their ballots in a month ahead of time and then the race materially changes by election day, that this would guard against that by, let's return to the uh, the presidential primary on the Democratic side, for instance. Um, a lot of voters might have voted a month early for Elizabeth Warren, say, and by the time Super Tuesday came around, it was clear that, you know, the... the Basically, a lot of people, or, or actually, forget about Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg. yeah, who, right. had, who had dropped out by that point, right? So they had voted for somebody who had actually exited the race. That now you would have had a second and a third and a fourth choice 
to um, to guard against the fact that your first choice dropped out. You would have had actual influence on the election at that point, as opposed to uh, what ended up happening. So we'll see if that, again, this is the first step for them to get onto the ballot. The next uh, full council will hear these, both of these, and decide whether to put them on the ballot. And the other one that they considered that really stood out was uh, to revoke 2012's ballot measure that um, restricted the use of project labor agreements on city big city projects. So a project labor agreement is where like the city wants to build a new stadium or something. And they say, uh, the labor unions say, okay, we're all going to provide all the labor for that. And we guarantee you no strikes or anything. And in exchange, all the labor for it, all the workers have to go through union halls to get hired. Uh, this law said that the city can't require those. It didn't say like there couldn't be those if right. the contractor or whatever got on board. And then the state put a bunch of things. It didn't seem like it was really uh, hampering project, la- labor, project labor agreements within the city of San Diego, but it certainly was a, a, a symbolic, if not, you know, uh, hurdle of some kind that they had to deal with. This measure would throw out that 2012 ballot measure and say they're legal and it's okay. And that also went forward. A similar one in Chula Vista passed in March. Uh, does this have a bigger significance than that? Well, so the, the proponents who are the building and construction trades unions um, have framed it um, as something that protects San Diego's access to state funding, which is true, but is a, maybe half of the story. Um, so after the 2010-2012 cycles, a bunch of cities in the state started passing uh, laws like Prop A in San Diego that restricted, to some extent, the use of project labor agreements. And so, the state responded to that by saying, passing its own laws that said, if you have one of these laws on the books, or if you don't um, allow project labor agreements, you're not eligible for certain state grants or loans. Um, And so, cities have been put in a position where obviously they want that funding. And so now they are trying to undo some of these measures. So while it is true that it protects state access access to state money, it's also true that those restrictions on state money were put in place specifically to see this type of law go forward. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's sort of a, a roundabout, um, it's like a cat and mouse game. Um, one thing I will say about the vote yesterday, uh, Councilwoman Bree voted against it. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, she's lined up against uh, labor in a lot of ways on those things. All right, last thing we want to go, Bree, of course, uh, is really upset that the city did not this week dock it for discussion, the SDSU purchase and sale agreement for Mission Valley Stadium land. SDSU says it's the last version of the the agreement that they're going to do. And this week they held a press conference. They were so upset that this didn't get on the city council agenda for May 19th. They held a press conference and Jack McGorry, who's on the California State University's uh, board of trustees, said something for the first time I hadn't heard yet, which was uh, the claim that uh, this this had to happen now or the whole deal might fall apart because of the COVID-19 financial catastrophe. This is the time to make this deal now before you get mired in the economic mess of cutting budgets and looking at all the projects that could potentially be cut. The time is now for the city to take advantage of this, to realize $87 million in acquisition proceeds, to take a $12 million stadium liability away from them and put it on the CSU side. We're committed to live up to the terms of that, but we need to do it now. And we're not going to wait any longer. We're not going to go back. So, I, I mean... I know this is probably, you know, the in every big negotiation has a moment where somebody's like, this is it, or we're leaving, or whatever. But not every negotiation has this pandemic, you know, as well. <laughs> yeah. So do you think they're really saying there, like, if you don't do this now, the CSU system's going to pull, pull it all and fall apart, and we're not going to do it at all? I don't know. Is that, is that good radio? <laughs> I don't know. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, one thing that you could maybe try to lend some insight on, Scott, is um, is there any good substantive reason not to docket it? I mean, I, I actually sort of think that Barbara Bree's uh, campaign, she's paying for ads and stuff right now, um, chastising the city for not, um, not docketing this item. Um, to me, if you don't want this deal, if you think that this deal doesn't sufficiently protect the city, 
so be it. Vote against it. Not docketing it uh, unless there's some sort of uh, technical or procedural issue that I don't understand right now. I don't see the wisdom in simply not docketing it. If you don't like the deal, vote against it by all means. Um, but to, but to just not even have an opportunity to get the thumbs up or downs vote seems weak to me. Yeah, there's something going on, and I can't figure out what. Um, you know, Georgia Gomez, the city council president, supports this deal, supported the outline of the deal, uh, campaigned with it, was happy with it, uh, and has and she has the full authority put it on the ba- on the docket for discussion. The mayor's office and SDSU said in order to get it done by July, it has to be on May 19th docket. You know, maybe they can stretch it a week or something. So I don't know what's holding it back, but it is being held back. And, you know, the city attorney has expressed a lot of concerns, but they don't seem, they do seem along the lines, many cases of you're taking on a liability. Are you comfortable with taking on that liability? Now, uh, if they're trying to figure something else out, maybe they're trying to get the reports right about it or agree on what it looks like in, in written terms. But, um, you know, it isn't, it isn't going forward yet. And that's why I thought that McGrory's point was so interesting is, is that's the big question. Can SDSU and the California State University system wait for whatever it takes to get this done? Uh, last point on this, I just want to say, as you know, some folks maybe don't watch city council docketing procedures as often as we do. This no. would not be the f- <laughs> this would not be the first time that there was a last minute final addition to a city council docket Friday afternoon or something like that. So the fact that it isn't on the docket yet does not close the book on this. No, absolutely not. So stay tuned on that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we'll have urban planner Howard Blackson talk about an idea he has about what could be next for restaurants and the outdoors. Stay with us. I'm Adriana Heldes, and I'm a producer at Voice of San Diego. When I started working here at Voice, and whenever we hire a new reporter, we get a debrief of the entire region. It's a quick but useful explanation of some stuff most people in San Diego don't know about. Our CEO, Scott Lewis, walks us through things we need to know in order to follow all the in-depth reporting Voice of San Diego does, like how San Diego gets its water, how local government works, why there are different types of schools, and who decides major things that affects us as San Diegans. These things help us understand the bigger picture and the drama that's happening in San Diego every day. And then we realized that everyone else should know this stuff too. So we started a project called San Diego 101. It's a video series that explains it all. Our videos will help you understand how our region works. And you can watch all five episodes now at vosd.org sd101. Again, that's vosd.org sd101. Okay, we are now joined in the great virtual Voice of San Diego podcast studio by urban designer Howard Blackson, who is here to talk to us about uh, an idea he put out on on Twitter this week that caught our attention because uh, it seems to acknowledge something that uh, is increasingly obvious but has not yet been acknowledged, which is that any sort of reopening plan we have in San Diego or anywhere else is going to rely quite a bit on moving indoor activities outside, Uh, that the science of this pandemic is increasingly demonstrating that when you're inside, the rate of transmission is uh, far higher and the risk is much greater. uh, And therefore, we need to start getting more comfortable doing things outside. And a lot of people want restaurants to reopen or bars to reopen. And we don't actually have all that much outdoor space for those bars and restaurants. And so Howard has put forward something of a solution. Um, with that lengthy preamble, Howard, can what can you tell me in broad strokes, what is your idea? The idea is to uh, allow for restaurants that have, that we know will have a 50% uh, capacity reduction in the restaurant and 50% of the people will be allowed in that were allowed before to keep the social distancing and to allow that 50% to be made up outside 
in the sidewalk, in the parking lane, and even in the street. Um, so that the, the main street uh, where most of the shops and most of the restaurants are located would end up being a plaza, um, which we've done before for like the Cyclos Dias and uh, um, other, other festival events uh, where we close down the street. And instead of closing it down for a day or a couple of days, we'll close it down for a couple of months, maybe a year, could be, you know, longer. Okay. That is actually pretty straightforward. And I think you're right. So like most neighborhoods have a farmer's market, right? Most of these, you know, uh, commercial districts. And so it's sort of that, except instead of having farmer's markets set up with stalls, there'll be extensions of the nearby restaurants, basically. That's right. It'll be a, 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 a central gathering place for not just the restaurants that are facing and fronting onto that street, but the adjacent ones that are just off the street. And the idea is that it's not a, a party zone to go on all night and all day. The idea is that it provides for shopping and food, uh, uh, sit-down dining um, with your family and, and, and yourself with social distancing. Um, and, um, sorry. So... Uh, so- it's okay. We're, hey, we're, we're podcasting in a pandemic. So, so, so to put some meat on what you're saying, so like, um, let's pick a neighborhood. You in the, the idea that you put forward, you put an overhead Google satellite view of Fern Street in South Park, right? And so basically like a two block area, you'd say, we'll vacate this area. Cars will have to drive on other roads. Um, and restaurants will occupy that space so that would that allow say you're a restaurant that's not in that two block area you could conceivably have some there could be some sort of organization that allows you to still have say five or six tables or ten tables or whatever on the street and it might mean that your waiters are walking food a block and a half to go there um but which isn't ideal, but it's better than just losing that business. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you see this in other cities. You see it in Seattle in some of their alleys. You see it in San Francisco on some of their side streets and, and alleys as well. And we're not, we don't, San Diego, we don't have the alleys. What we have are excessively wide streets. Um, and, and fortunately in, in most of urbanized San Diego, we have a network of streets. So if we were to close a block or two along, you know, every neighborhood center, which are evenly spaced out about every half mile or so, or every five, 10 minutes away from the next one, such as South Park that we were talking about on Fern Street and Juniper. And then you just go down to the next one where you're Grape Street in 30th and go down to the next one where you're on Beach in 30th. There's, it's, they're evenly spaced. Um, and if you took one, one block or two blocks in each one of those, conceivably with the study that's being done right now for the city of San Diego, um, um, we'll show that you can get that capacity that's being lost to social distancing inside the restaurant back outside. Now, the issue that you brought up is um, uh, the management and the operation of it, which is which is the um, business districts. So most of these areas are in a business district. The one that so we're talking about is, I think, called the South Park Micro Bid and the City of San Diego's Economic Development Corporation's de- Development um, Department manages them and and so those those entities would be the people that would assist with chairs and tables putting up uh, 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 putting in uh, taking away signage lighting uh, uh, putting uh, uh, managing the people distancing from each other um, so there's there is that funding financing issue of how do we how do we or how do we generate enough money to have these bids do this type of work these bids business improvement districts to do this type of work over the long haul and and that's something that the state's working on right now with their new uh, ABC alcohol beverage control uh, is um, are working on with an emergency relief right now at the state level that'll be available I think in about two to three weeks for us to use um, to enable us to have beverage services, alcohol services outside of the business. Okay. So there is there is a, a money problem here that somebody's going to have to, there's some new amount of work going into to managing these things that's going to have to be paid for by someone. 
whether it's these districts or because uh, uh, so these districts just to, for a bit of background they're membership organizations essentially you, or well no because you're actually, self they're self-taxing districts self-taxing districts right and so they could they have small budgets that they do things like organize farmers markets um so out of whatever budget they remain and they've taken big hits as well here um they would try to pay for something like this. So there'd be a funding problem that somebody would have to sort out. But it seems like there's just a lot of logistical problems that as a longtime resident, I'm not all that uh, optimistic about the city being able to sort out. I'm thinking about things like uh, fire lanes, um, you know, sort of emergency response opportunities, ADA storm accessibility, stormwater, storm ADA access, and fire are really the issues. Um, and and but what, what is happening though? The city of San Diego Development Services are working on a pre a permit that's pre approved for a longer term special event, which is what this is. Uh, the issue really is just conflicts between cars and people, and if the barriers are temporary, then putting them up and putting them down every day is going to be a part of that issue. If the barriers could be more long-term, that would be cheaper, easier. Those decisions need to be made. Um, the issue, though, really is this. that One of the, the, the we, we haven't discussed, too, is is it for, you know, to be equitable, it needs to go through the business improvement district so that we don't have individual restaurants trying to do all of this work by themselves in front of their business. Um, yeah, like we it have creates to work like together. a new real estate war, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Right. The, the ramifications of doing it individually uh, all over the city uh, are mind-boggling to me. That's why you need a plan, and you need to be able to identify these places. And then for these places, these are the these are the regulations and responses that go in. You know that you can. Um, enforce or, or, or um, you know, check and make sure that you're up to code and doing it properly. And then, and then um, those places end up being, you know, really just more commonplace. It becomes plazas, that squares that we just don't really have in the city of San Diego um, and a new way of looking at the streets. And we've been doing this, though, with the Cyclist Dias. I think that's been a really good preparation for this. Well, and, well we also, so the city did a couple of weeks ago, rolled out its slow streets plan and i just say rolled out because it's you know it's like three road three streets right now um and they've talked about potentially expanding that um but as one bit of one comparison that slow streets initiative is comparatively much less work much many fewer problems you you know people are still allowed to drive on those slow streets you just can't they're close to through traffic if you live on that area you're still perfectly yeah. allowed to, to turn into yeah it, it, it the slow street means that the the, the pedestrian and the bicycle is prioritized speed wise but it's still a street and we're talking about changing it from a street to a plaza the the issue too that we we brought up and hasn't been resolved yet is how the county health department public health department will enable this to happen in our cities across um, San Diego as well. They're very important in this, and they haven't made a decision yet. Um, and then we're waiting for ABC. So uh, we will have to probably have to do some sort of you know, temporary, tactical, short-term test and measure it, and then wait for all the rules and regulations to follow you know, months down the road. How do you, I, I mean, the, the thing that, that, so like you were explaining to me fire lanes, that if you, you could still allow for the uh, requirement for a a fire truck to get through these areas. You could still create this plaza and still allow the 15 foot easement that a fire truck would need to go through. So, so that seems like a a manageable. Yeah. And it's manageable because it's just unobstructed. So you could even have something temporary there that can be moved quickly. You just can't have a permanent structure there for it to block the fire truck. The the part that I have a hard time imagining is how, how do you, provide ADA accessibility. I mean, you know, some of these businesses right now are open only to like curbside pickup. Um, How does this not completely restrict the ability for somebody with some sort of um, disability to access these 
these uh, right. so, businesses so at all. So you have to have standards or a plan that say, you know, this is the travel way for pedestrians going through, still using the sidewalk. This is the place where, the, like the landscape verge that goes between the curb of the street and the sidewalk, that could be a dining place. The parking area could be a dining place. And then the travel lane itself, if it's still, if it's, if it's available, could be a dining place or shopping place as well. And then you could use things like reflective tape to show distancing between a you know a two person table and a four person table which should be a, a max and that tape would be able to give you distancing so that the managers of those shops could help manage uh, the spacing between the people because really it's a health you know it's a health issue is what we're dealing with and so i i think tape and and tables don't restrict um, ADA or stormwater or fire access if there is a standard and a plan that 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 the restaurants can follow. So it sounds to me like even going down the ro- route of explaining the, or of uh, looking into this, even attempting to, to sort out all these problems, you'd only it would only be worth it if you believed that this was going to be our present state for quite a while longer. Um, right. If 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 we were on the verge of having bars and restaurants open again in you know something resembling full capacity in two or three months, it's probably too much work to justify. But if this is going to be the case for six months to a year, um, then maybe we need to start being creative right now about how we keep businesses from going under. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and there's an existing you know public right of way permitting process to expand seating outside that's in place today on the sidewalk it's the change is seating in the in the parking in the thoroughfare uh, drive the the travel lane that that's correct in that we know that we probably will be dealing with this in some degree until we have a a vaccine and the vaccine is what two years down the road so we are looking at this uh down the road um, more than a couple of months. And that's why I think that this is um, the idea of it being like temporary daily is maybe not as good as it being an actual closed plaza identified and, and has and has the traffic routing. And so people figure out the flow of getting through what they had used as a street to get around the street and the bus and the trucks and the delivery and the service. Um, those all things need to be worked out. And that's why doing these individually restaurant by restaurant would be a nightmare, but doing them collectively in neighborhood centers throughout your community with business improvement districts um, is probably the right way of doing it. And then it'll allow us to do this again in the future. If I don't know, maybe another sort of virus spins out of this and there's a pandemic uh, 20 years from now, we'll be ready. Aside from the most popular political podcast recorded in virtual studios across greater San Diego. Have you had any pickup from this idea? Has anybody reached out to you to, to, to talk about it? Yes. Um, um, uh, people from the County, um, um, uh, uh, their planning department and their, their board of supervisors, people from the city development services. And I'll say Liz Studebaker at the economic development, uh, or yeah, I believe it's economic department, uh, is, is in doing a great job. She's, um, she's, she's taking everything like a, out of a fire hose. It's just coming at her because she's working with small businesses across San Diego. And she knows that in talking with them, that having that additional capacity outside, as Scott Lewis has been um, 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 drumming on about, you know, greatly the past few days, uh, very smartly, is, is, is the opportunity we have to, to bring economic development back to uh, these businesses. Because 50% capacity that's that's a monday tuesday wednesday typically and they still need their thursday friday saturday money to get by and we got to help them you know have the space to do it and we have the space we are driving less this isn't intended to be uh bring back the region and have everybody drive to these um, uh, plazas and, and 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 dine and party and stuff these are intended to help local people go to their local area their local neighborhood center and be able to Enjoy a dinner and shop and do it safely without having to stay in your house for another three months with their teenage daughters. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I mean, no, it, it, it's true. I think, I think a lot of people, 
I know certainly I have spent, you know, I spend a lot of time outdoors in my neighborhood right now. Um, I'm probably more closely, I feel closer to my neighborhood as the place I live than I probably ever have right now. Because instead of going into into bars or restaurants all over the city, instead of commuting downtown to go to work down there, I spend all of my time here. Um, and so it, it drafts off of that nicely. There, there's some, there's uh, a kinship with that. Here's what I do wonder though, is does this, do we have a potential equity problem that the business improvement districts that are um, most well-suited to manage this or that are most likely to have the funding to be able to do this are going to be in certain neighborhoods and not others? Um, you know, there is a diamond business improvement district in the Southeastern San Diego and Canto area. Um, right. So maybe they could put something together. There is one in San Isidro. Um, but in, in general, are we going to run into underserved communities being once again underserved based on the structure of this system? Um, of, of course. And, and I mean, that's, that's why they're underserved. And so um, the issue of equity is then the business improvement districts are um, public-private partnerships. And and I think that we're going to see that the, a bit of a shift because the, the the planning department, the city of, will allow um, will have the permits to do these available. Um, it's not. It's just that something is going. It's going to be harder to do it individually than to try to do it collectively. Um, the I think of places like the El Cajon Business Improvement District becoming even more uh, El Cajon Boulevard Business Improvement District. You know, expanding its you know role. This is like you're saying too. This is more of a long term sort of solution uh, to um, San Diego being able to just be outdoors. Uh, San Diego to use its weather to its greatest advantage which is our greatest advantage. Um, and so um, I think this is a, a, the start of us looking at the way we use our streets differently. And, and it started with what you just said. People, people are out walking. People are out getting out of the house to uh, exercise. They have time. They're looking at their neighborhoods differently. And instead of this being, we're not really sheltering in place like a fire. We're sheltering in our neighborhoods. We're sheltering in our in our communities. And we're learning a lot about the the value of public space and access to the public space. And then the streets having a different sort of view than just being for cars to, to drive business. You know, streets are now lifeblood for us to get out and and be social without with uh, socializing distancing. So um, it's a new, you know, it's a brave new world, and we're a part of it. Howard Blackson, thank you for coming in. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. No problem. Oh, and by the way, Kristen Blackson is a wonderful lady, and she loves loves your podcast. Please don't cut that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. It's the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in Scott Lewis's kitchen. (laughs) Get the politics report every week. Andy and I put that together. It covers a lot of the stuff we talk about here and more. And get Sarah's weekly wrap-up. That's called What We Learned This Week. It's politics on Saturday and the wrap-up on Sunday. Get those at voiceofsandiego.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief. Andrew Keats is assistant editor, Sarah Libby's managing editor, and this show is produced by Nate John. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>